invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 8 through 22. And this will support our text from Genesis 50. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he would afterward receive as an inheritance, which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. And then we go to Genesis 50. Actually, we'll read chapter 49, verse 33 as well. This is God's word. When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. And when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, 
before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That ends the reading of God's holy word this morning. Brothers and sisters and boys and girls, as we come into Genesis 50, the context is that Jacob has just pronounced blessings on his children. That's what chapter 49 records for us. And these are um, kind of prophetic, predictive blessings. So Jacob is very much looking to the future as he does this. And because he is giving these blessings, he, he blessings, Hebrew tells us uh, specifically that Jacob is a man of faith. He's doing this in faith. I want to ask you as we start out this morning, is it easy for Jacob to be a man of faith, do you think? Is it easy or is it difficult? It's difficult, that's the answer. It's difficult. Jacob, as he's dying, is once again in exile. You know, he's been traveling around most of his life sojourning. He's a sojourner. He calls himself that. And once again at the end, that's his condition. Genesis 15 tells us of this. Genesis 15 is when God is making a covenant with Abraham. Perhaps you remember that story, children. Maybe you remember the animal get cut up and and there's this kind of bloody trail between the animals, and well, Abraham has a dream. God passes through the the path, and uh, he's making a covenant with Abraham, a solemn promise. And and he says to Abraham, Genesis 15, verse 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And so Abraham Tells Isaac about this, right? This is in the family. Isaac tells his sons, Jacob knows these words from Genesis 15, verse 13. And here at the end of his life, that's exactly Jacob. Stranger in a land that is not his own. Now it's true that he would have also known the verses that follow, which speak of, of coming out of that situation and coming out with great possessions. Uh, but it was not clear to Jacob how this would take place. And so Jacob had to live by faith, we could say, and not by sight. Which is the very character, the very uh, nature of faith. We know that from Second Corinthians 5. 
Hebrews 11 also says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not yet seen. So Jacob doesn't yet see what's before him, what's in store for him, his family. Um, and yet he has faith in God. And, and what is that based on? Well, it's based on who God is. Chapter 48, as he's nearing the end of his life, he's talking to Joseph and he says this. He's talking about God. God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who is my shepherd all my life long to this day. He has been my shepherd. That's Jacob's testimony near the end of his life. And God is our shepherd as well. I want to remind, remind you of the 23rd Psalm, which says that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that psalm is in the background of Genesis 50 for us this morning. We're going to look at those two things together. Two texts. And so the message is titled, The Lord Will Provide. We're going to see that the Lord provides amid distress. The Lord provides amid doubt. And the Lord provides amid death. So first, uh, amid distress. As we begin chapter 50, Jacob has just died and Joseph is heartbroken. Verse 1, he, he falls on his father's face and he weeps over him and kisses him. It's very distressing for Joseph. We're not surprised by that. And amid this distress, God provides. The Lord, who is Joseph's shepherd, walks with him through the valley of his father's death. And what does he provide Joseph? Well, first, the opportunity to fulfill his father's last wish. That's very clear from chapter 49. Very important that Joseph would do this. Jacob wants to be buried in this field that Abraham had bought. You can read about that earlier in Genesis. And so Joseph approaches Pharaoh and he makes this request. Let me go into Canaan that I might bury my father. And Pharaoh agrees. In the providence of God, Pharaoh agrees with this. Right? We know that God can direct the hearts of of kings. Uh, Proverbs tells us that. And so in the providence of God, Pharaoh agrees here. And so Jacob is embalmed. And we read a little bit about that. Um, that's not a usual practice for the Hebrews, but it is for the Egyptians. And, and usually when the Egyptians embalmed people, there were all sorts of rituals surrounding that. A magic, we could even say. And it was the priests who were doing the embalming. But now, interesting, Joseph's, uh, we're told that he, he gets his physicians to do this. So it's a bit of an aside, but I think it's worthwhile pointing out. This could be a reminder to us that Joseph has not adopted all of the religious practices of the Egyptians, even though he's been living in Egypt. It's more of a medical, scientific kind of endeavor here. Why is it helpful? Why does he need to be embalmed, Jacob? Well, so that he can travel. Uh, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on embalming, but if you don't know what we're talking about here, the basics is that the intestines will be removed and the interior of the body would be dehydrated, and that's what takes 40 days. So reference to that there in verse 3. And the intestines dried out would also then be placed back in the, in the body, and the body externally would be washed with uh, spiced wine, anointed with oils, wrapped in linen, and covered with a protective coating called resin. So that's, in short, the embalming process. So now Jacob's body is ready to be transported. It's not going to decay along the way. And, and so Joseph goes out and his brothers go out and, and the father's household. 
And we're told they're accompanied by many people from Egypt. All these chariots and horsemen accompanying the sons of Israel out of Egypt to Canaan. A great company, we're told. Verse 9. And together they traveled to Machpelah to Jacob's final resting place. So first, God provides uh, the fulfillment of Jacob's last wish. Secondly, God provides the space to grieve. The space to grieve. Again, Joseph is deeply distressed here over the death of his father. And we notice in the beginning of this passage all the references to weeping. Right? That's a an important thing. That's a good thing to weep when someone dies. And, and so it is for Jacob. There's much weeping. Verse 3, we're told the Egyptians mourn for him 70 days. Can you imagine? 70 days over two months of weeping. Of course, when a loved one dies, we, we never really stop grieving in a sense. And it looks differently for all of us all the time. But but this is an intense period specifically of mourning right after the death. 70 days, long time. Israelites would normally um, grieve someone for a period of about 7 to 30 days. And the Egyptians mourned their royalty for 70 days. So Jacob's being given the honor of royalty here. Very high honor. And it's, if that's not enough, as they travel, there's another week of mourning, right? Seven days of mourning at this place along the way. And, and it's such a great morning, such a grievous lamentation that the place is renamed. And literally what it means is the morning of Egypt. And so the Lord provides Joseph and his brothers with these two things. Have you experienced this provision from the Lord? Right, God is, is gracious to us. And we say that kind of generally, but, but God is gracious to us, especially in times of distress. And so if you're in a time of great distress, what, what has God provided for you? Supportive people, no doubt, and an opportunity to fulfill last wishes and, and space to grieve. And why does he do this? Because he is your shepherd. Because he is your shepherd. And so when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death in the sense of another person's death, you need not fear because your Lord knows what you need. And so like a sheep is able or a bunch of sheep are able to lie down in green pasture because they feel secure and only because they feel secure in the hands of the shepherd. So you are able to rest in peace in the hands of your Lord, despite the distress that you may face. One more thing before we move on to our second point. It's important to notice this is not just about Jacob and Joseph uh, as individuals, as much as that is the case, but this is also about the people of God. I mentioned that Jacob was shown the honor of royalty, and actually that's significant because Jacob is the head of a nation. He's the, he's the patriarch of of a people, Israel, not just this family of 12 sons and their children and their households, but this is going to become a great nation. It's important that we recognize that. So Pharaoh's provision for, for Jacob to be buried in his plot in Canaan points us forward to God's provision for his people, that they will have the promised land. They will be brought into the promised land, the land which he had sworn on oath to Abraham. And so God provides amid distress. God also provides amid doubt. So God has provided beautifully for Joseph and his brothers. The text kind of focuses on Joseph a bit, but his brothers as well, right? They, it's their father who died too. And yet after this, despite this, doubt still exists in the hearts of the brothers. Look at verse 15. What do they say? They saw that their father was dead and they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. You know, there was all this wonderful reconciliation, if you're familiar with the story here in Genesis a few chapters earlier, and they came together and they're weeping and they're embracing. and It seemed like it was all good. 
But sometimes in families, the patriarch or the matriarch, for that matter, kind of holds the family together. Sometimes when they die, the family cohesion kind of comes apart. Maybe you've experienced this. Uh, I've experienced this to a degree, if I'm honest. And um, so these are the doubts that the brothers have. Well, now that he's now that Jacob's gone, who knows? Who knows if it's all really reconciled? And amid these doubts, God provides. The Lord, who is his people's shepherd, walks with them as they fear evil. And what does he provide them with? Two things, comfort and assurance. First of all, the comfort and assurance of his forgiveness. So as we say, the brothers have a hard time wrapping their heads around Joseph's forgiveness, and it's because of what they've done, right? How could he forgive us? We did so much evil towards him. Maybe he hates us. Maybe maybe he wants revenge. Maybe he wants payback. And it's because of that, verse 16 tells us with that word, so, so in light of what they were fearing, they sent messengers to Joseph saying, and then what follows? They made something up as a suggestion to tell Joseph. Don't think these are actually words Jacob told them to say. Please forgive us. That's the gist of it. And also verse 18, they bow down before his face. And now if you're familiar with the story of Jacob, think how meaningful that is. Joseph, rather. He had that dream, right? My brothers, my father, my mother, and then bow down to me. And once again, they're bowing down before him. Please forgive us. We are your servants. How does Joseph respond? Well, at the end of verse 17, we're told that he weeps when they speak to him. He's a forgiving man, and, and he's, he's showed that to them already, and he continues to show that. Verse 19, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? See, he leaves the righting of wrongs to God. And how can he do this? That's an important question to ask yourself. How can Joseph leave the righting of wrongs to God? What strength does he have within him that enables him to be so forgiving, to be so merciful and so good toward his brothers? And the answer is he can do this because God has shown him goodness and mercy first. And so it's as if he's saying, we can put these words on the lips of Joseph, I think it's fair to say this, the Lord is my shepherd, brothers, and he's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, just as he was for dad. And so I want for nothing, and I fear no evil. He has restored me and comforted me, and I know that his goodness and mercy are for me. Beloved, this brings us to the good news that is at the heart of our faith. It's what we proclaim every week, I trust, from this pulpit. That God has shown us his mercy and goodness in Christ Jesus. Because you might wonder sometimes whether God can really love you. It's true, Christians have that doubt. Maybe you're here and you're still on the fence about this faith and you're wondering about all of this. You might wonder whether God can really love you. It may be that he'll hate me. After all, I've done so much that's wrong, so much that's evil. It could be that God wants to pay me back. Well, if these doubts come up in our minds, if these questions are there before us, then we need to look to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see that God focused all of his hatred against evil, which is a very real hatred. He focused all of that against himself. As Jesus paid the penalty that was due us for our sins. It's all that wrath upon Jesus. What's left for us? Only the goodness and the mercy of God. And Jesus, God has freed us, we could say, using Joseph-type imagery. He's freed us from the prison of our sin, and he's placed us in the seat of honor next to him. And because God has treated us in such a way, because we have been forgiven and loved in this way, we can also forgive and love others. 
That's the motivation. Think of Romans 12. Romans 12 tells us, verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So there's a call to the Christian. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Don't take revenge. How can we do that? Well, if we go back to the beginning of Romans 12, it says, In light of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, that's how we can live in this way. In view of God's merciful provision for us, we can feel free to forgive others. We can feel free to let God be God, trusting Him that He will right every wrong. If not in the moment, at least ultimately He will. So the brothers received the comfort and assurance of His forgiveness. They also received the comfort and assurance of His purposes. That's what Joseph next speaks to, the purposes of God. Verse 20, it's a Famous verse, it's a well-known verse. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, especially that part. So what is God's purpose in all of this? All that's happened with Joseph and his brothers? His purpose is good. God meant it for good. Well, then why has there been so much suffering, you might ask? And the answer simply is, in the providence of God, this is how it happened. What is the providence of God? Well, let's remind ourselves from our Confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism says, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby nothing comes to us by chance, but only by his fatherly hand. And the Belgic says that he leads and governs all things according to his holy will, all things, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. How do you respond to that? Well, you might say, I don't like that. That means God causes evil to happen. If that's your reaction... What do you think Joseph would say to that? If Joseph were here and you said that, what would he say to you? Well, we have it here, right? And we also have it in chapter 45. He says, God isn't responsible for evil. God didn't cause evil. Right? He says to his brothers, you meant evil against me. That's true. But God meant it for good. You sold me here, chapter 45, but God sent me before you to preserve life. And so this is how God works. He is able to and he does work through what we could call secondary causes to accomplish his good. He works through a famine. He works through jealous brothers. He works through false imprisonment. Through it all, he is at work. That's the primary cause. And his good purpose in back of all of the brothers' sinful actions, all of the calamity of the famine. It's mysterious, to be sure. It's wonderful, though. And ultimately, it's incomprehensible. But you know, if you're struggling to understand this, this doctrine, if you're struggling to understand this idea of God, working through other causes. This all comes together in the death of Jesus. Because the death of Jesus is the greatest evil that was ever perpetrated. And yet it's also the greatest good that was ever accomplished. And Acts 2 lays this out for us as Peter's preaching at Pentecost. He says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Right? Did you hear the contrast there, the, the two things going on? On the one hand, the evil purpose of men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross, very much an action of the people. And yet also the good purpose of God, God raised him from the dead, thereby freeing him from death and, and freeing us. Right? And this continues to be the case today. People do bad things, but God works through it for good, right? Romans 8, verse 28. 
In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So the comfort and assurance of his purposes comes to the brothers and to us. Finally, also the comfort and assurance of his help. Verse 21. This is a verse that you could skip over easy enough in light of verse 20, but it's a wonderful verse. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, this family's experienced a lot of intensity of late. If you think about the story, they, they were starving because of the famine, and then the brothers came to Egypt for food, and they were tested by their brother, um, even had to be imprisoned, a couple of them. And, and then they reconciled, and of course that's beautiful, but that's still intense. It's still, a, still an emotional, exhausting kind of thing. And, and then they transitioned from living in Canaan to living in Goshen, and now their fathers died. There's a lot that's been going on for this family. Pretty intense time. So Joseph's words and his actions here in verse 21 promise relief, uh, promise uh, a much-needed breather to the brothers. Literally, it says there, uh, he spoke to their hearts. He spoke kindly to them. He spoke to their hearts. And this is a picture of God's kind providence toward us, brothers and sisters. You know, we, we think of what God does for us, how God acts towards us, and we, we speak of his forgiveness. And of course, that's essential, that's foundational. But God doesn't just forgive us. He does more than that. He also gives us all things needed for body and soul. And so when we go through challenging seasons in our lives, times of refreshing will inevitably follow, where he speaks to your heart, where, where he provides like a little oasis along the way as you're in the desert. I can't tell you what exactly that looks like, how long it will be, these kinds of things, but he does this. Because this is the way a good shepherd works. He leads me beside quiet waters and he restores my soul. So amid your doubt, God provides comfort and assurance of his forgiveness, of his purposes, and of his help for you. And then as God provides for you, he also enables you to be used by him as he provides for others. Secondary blessing of this all. So our great God provides. He provides amid distress. He provides amid doubt. He also provides amid death. This chapter ends with J- Joseph's death, and God provides for him as his shepherd. The Lord, who is Joseph's shepherd, walks with him through the valley of his own impending death. And what does he provide? Well, he provides the hope of life. In some ways, he's always been showing this to Joseph. Joseph has had a very fruitful life, and this um, summary of his life at the end uh, expresses this. We're, we're told that Joseph saw his children children to the third generation. Uh, That's a sign of blessing, that God has given him a rich life. It's interesting, Joseph, we're also told, verse 22 and 26, was 110 years old when he died. Now, you'll find this interesting that a lot of important Egyptians were noted as 110 years old when they died. So do with that what you will. But, But it seems that that was for the Egyptians the ideal age, the desirable age, that they lived a full life if they were 110 years Symbolic of God's blessing to Joseph. So he's lived a full life, and in that sense there's there's this hope before him. But especially what we're interested in here is verse 24 and 25. The, the fuller life which is yet to come. Joseph says to his brothers, I am dying, yes, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Maybe as he says this, he has Genesis 15 in mind. That promise that God had given, after a while you will be taken up out of 
this strange land and you'll come out with great possession. Well, after Genesis comes Exodus, Exodus gives us the account of Moses and the people of Israel, right? Uh, mistreated by a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and who felt threatened by this people that was not just a little group of people now, but was a great nation living within the land of Egypt. And Moses is going to go to this Pharaoh and he's going to make a request. Does this sound familiar? Let us go into the wilderness that we may worship him. But this time, the providence of God is such that the Pharaoh is going to disagree with the request. He hardens his heart. He refuses Moses. And yet Israel leaves anyway in the end. This time the chariots aren't going out with them in support. This time the chariots are chasing them in opposition. And God works through the evil of the Egyptians, of the Pharaoh and his army, to accomplish a great good. The salvation of his people through the Red Sea. And then the people journey in the wilderness. They're sojourners, just as Jacob had been. Death is all around them. And they struggle at times with the providence of God. They complain about the circumstances they're in, and they pine for the things of Egypt. They long for Egypt, for the security that it provided, even in their slavery. And yet the hope of life is before them all the while, right? The promised land is before them. So what about us? Amid the reality of death, we, we live in that reality. Do you see the Lord's provision for you? Do you see the hope of life before you? Because it is there for you in Jesus. You know, the closing words of this book, this chapter, we're told that Joseph was put in a coffin in Egypt. That word coffin is the same word for ark. Ark. So perhaps you've not thought of this before, but there are actually two arks present in the Israelites' desert wanderings. One ark carrying the bones of a dead man, Joseph's coffin, and the other, the Ark of the Covenant, carrying tablets with the law of the living God. And in order for man to live, he needs to fulfill the law of God. And Jesus did so. And so Jesus is God's greatest provision for us. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Right from the very beginning, almost the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. And we could say that the bones of Jacob cried out to God from the grave. And the blood of Jesus is God's answer to us from the cross. And so in Jesus, we can say God has surely visited us. Do we see that? Because again, we're sojourners like Israel. We're on a pilgrimage through a place that is not our forever home. I've just moved from one rental house to another over the summer. Very conscious of the fact it's not my forever home. But, but even if you have a beautiful home that you designed and planned and built, and, and it feels like you'll never move, it's still not your forever home. And we pass through the Red Sea, so to speak, right? Praise the Lord for that. We're saved. But the journey isn't always pleasant. So, so do we complain about our circumstances? Do we seek something different? Do, do we secretly wish that we could just settle in Egypt and avoid the desert altogether? Saying, you know, the promised land was a nice dream, but it's just a dream after all. Well, if the book of Genesis teaches us anything, it's that God is with us and God directs our lives, even through our sufferings. And he did that with all of those listed in Hebrews 11. You know, Noah, we didn't read of all of them, but Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, also Moses. And Hebrews 11 goes on to speak of others and says, Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, mentions women, as well, not by name, but a number of them. And you see, the challenge for us, for them and for us, 
as we journey through this life is to believe that the Lord is in fact my shepherd, that the Lord is with me. That in the presence of my enemies, he prepares a table before me. And he anoints my head with oil and he makes sure that my cup is filled. But all of these saints of old, difficult as it was to believe, they believed this. And so they lived in hope. And we're told here that they didn't receive what was promised. They were still looking for that as they died. They died in faith, being assured of the promises of God. Because they believe that God provided for them, that he will provide for them, and that what he provides is something better. They believed in a better country, we're told, a heavenly inheritance. That's provision of perfection for his people forever. So do you believe this? That Christ Jesus, as he was raised from the dead to glorious life, that he is the first fruits of a glorious harvest that is coming, that we are also part of that resurrection, that will culminate in the new creation. Because you see, this makes all the difference as to whether or not you have hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. God will surely visit us. That's how the Bible ends. Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And to this we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. In the meantime, while we wait for that moment, we wait with hope. Confessing, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.